Welcome back to Horror Science, a podcast exploring the facts behind your favorite scary movies. I'm your host, Olivia Eiler. This week we'll be looking at our first listener recommendation, The Silence of the Lambs. If you're wondering uh, how can I get my favorite scary movie covered, there's a couple of ways. You can either send an email to horrorsciencepodcast at gmail.com or send a tweet out to at horrorsciencepo. I also want to go ahead and apologize if there's any background audio uh, that you can hear. I, as you know, I'm at college uh, and I found a really great recording space. It's this really small study room in an honors college. It's got carpet. It's great. Um, I'm recording this on a Saturday morning and unknowingly to me, we're having some kind of community day for little elementary schoolers. So in the hallway outside of my recording, little kids just keep passing by and like laughing and screaming. Uh, so I've, I've tried to limit that sound as much as I can, but if you hear it, that's what it is. Uh, it also made me feel really uncomfortable to be talking about serial killers uh, because there is a little gap in the door. So hopefully no kids are scarred in the making of this episode. So, The Silence of the Lambs was directed by Jonathan Demme and distributed by Orion Pictures in 1991. The film is based off of a book of the same name written by Thomas Harris and published in 1988. The film was vastly successful, taking home five Oscars in 1992. Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Director, and Best Writing Adapted Screenplay. The Silence of the Lambs was able to take something as horrible as a plot about two serial killers and package it in a way that appealed to a huge audience. And I think a lot of that comes from the intelligent way that all of the characters are presented. The 90s were a time of slashers, possession films, and tons and tons of B-movies. But The Silence of the Lambs has been able to maintain its status as more of a highbrow horror film. Even if you haven't seen the film and you're not a horror fan, chances are you've heard the name Hannibal Lecter and you know the connotations that go along with that. But I want to make sure that no one feels left out, so I'm going to run through the plot pretty quickly here. The movie opens on Clary Starling at the FBI training program at Quantico. Despite the demands of some pretty intense coursework, Jack Crawford from the Behavioral Science Unit decides to ask Starling for her help on an investigation. It's not like she's busy with training or anything. So Clarice hops on over to Baltimore to interview Hannibal Lecter, a psychiatrist turned cannibalistic serial killer. Good morning. Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. Can I speak with you? You're one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? The purpose of this trip is to form a profile for an active killer with the moniker Buffalo Bill. Billy's been killing females and taking parts of their skin. Uh, He's also really into Sphinx moths. That's important for later. There's kind of a happy ending here. Uh, Buffalo Bill, aka James Gum, is caught right before he has the opportunity to kill a high-profile victim, a senator's daughter. And it is James with no S, not a pronunciation error. The book makes a huge deal out of this, and it stuck with me, so it's definitely James without an S. Uh, Back to the movie, Starling, despite being distracted by this case, 
still somehow manages to graduate on time from the academy. But the last scene closes on Hannibal Lecter giving Clarice a call from overseas. You see, he escaped to an island in the sun. And here's a spoiler for book three in the series. Uh, Lecter has now developed an obsession with Clarice. So not a good outlook for her in sequels. So there are quite a few things worth looking into with this film. Uh, first is, what is life like at Quantico? How demanding is the training? Spoiler alert, Clarice would not have been able to pass if she was juggling an investigation into an active serial killer with her coursework. Next up, what's the deal with modus operandi and signatures? These two criminology terms can help explain how Buffalo Bill was profiled and apprehended. The next subject is the lengthiest of the bunch, and it covers the real-life serial killers that Buffalo Bill resembles. There are six of these, some of them household names and a few more obscure. Finally, I want to look into the case of Robert Keppel, a detective who teamed up with Ted Bundy to profile and capture the Green River Killer. You see, the idea of using a captured killer to find an active one was not invented for this movie. So we'll dive right into life at Quantico, Virginia at the FBI Training Academy. The basic brochure information for this comes from the FBI's own website. As always, you can find the link to this source and to all of the others I'll reference throughout this episode on the landing page at horrorscience.x10host.com. So, after you get past the challenge of even being accepted to the Academy, you head to Quantico for over 800 hours in training. Over the course of about 20 weeks, you'll focus on four main areas. Academics, case exercises, firearms trainings, and operational skills. The FBI website breaks it down pretty specifically within each of those categories. You've got the kind of stuff you would expect, uh, marksmanship, ethics, law, counterterrorism tactics, and interrogation techniques. But there were also a few things that I wasn't aware of. For instance, as part of the operational skills portion of training, trainees learn how to box and they have to attend a session on safe driving techniques. The case exercises portion, though, was definitely the most interesting to read about. The Academy has a fake town named Hogan's Alley that's stocked with actors playing terrorists and criminals. They also have an exercise called Capstone that focuses on intelligence operations. And finally, the trainees present evidence in a fake court. So once you make it through, if you do, you're not done with Quantico. According to the FBI's website, agents return to Quantico often for specialized training and some refresher courses. So all of that information is good and well, uh, but it's pretty cut and dry. So I found another source that followed a class of trainees through the program. It's a 2006 article written by Sari Horwitz for the Washington Post titled, Over 18 Weeks, An Arduous Path to the Badge. I really don't know how Horwitz got access for this story, um, but it was interesting and surprisingly an emotional read. I'm just going to go over a few highlights, but it's for sure worth a read if you're interested in the subject at all. So the story starts in October of 2005. 750 agents were expected to go through the training for FBI in 2006, and they were split into groups of 50. So Horwitz followed the first class of 50 to go through that year. 30 of the trainees came from military or law enforcement, like you would probably expect. 
uh, but the other 20 were less traditional uh, with lots of formal education. Examples were given of a biomedical engineer with a doctorate in pathogenesis, a rich lawyer from Manhattan, and a professor. If you want more demographic information, uh, there was one African-American recruit and no Arab-Americans. Out of the 50, only nine were women. So on the first day of training, the recruits had to stand up and share why they wanted to be an FBI agent. I know that when my professors in college make me introduce myself to the class, it's always really uncomfortable. So I'm imagining that times 10 for this. Uh, then the trainees get their standard issued uniforms, blue polos, khaki pants, and hiking boots. Next, they get a tour. Uh, they walk past a World Trade Center memorial and past the cafeteria and the gym, which are both decorated with posters from movies about the FBI. Then they stop by the gun vault. The class is shown a melted Glock 22, which was carried by an officer into the World Trade Center. They're also shown a 9mm Smith & Wesson with a bullet hole through the middle. Its carrier was killed in a gunfight in Miami. There was no sugarcoating for these trainees. Sixteen of them received firearm manuals that had the name and age of an officer who was killed on duty. Two trainees dropped out of the program after that class. So later in that first week, the remaining recruits uh, ranked their top choices for their first assignment. There are 56 FBI field offices around the United States, ranging from the Washington field office, which has dozens of counterterrorism squads, to a two-person office in Montana. Five weeks into training, the recruits go through a process called orders. Each trainee stands in front of the group, shares their top location choice from four weeks ago, and then opens an envelope that contains their actual assignment for when they complete the program. Every three to five years, they'll be given a new assignment and required to uproot themselves to a new location. In January, the group of recruits experienced something referred to as OC spray. Almost everyone interviewed in this article said that that was the worst day of training by far. So each student was sprayed with pepper spray derived from cayenne pepper from a distance of four feet. They had to open at least one eye, protect their gun from another trainee that was trying to grab it, and force that other trainee down onto the ground. The next day, the very next day, the recruits were divided into groups of five based on their weight. Each group stood in a circle and took turns punching their fellow recruits. They each went for two two-minute rounds. Uh, the article says that the Rocky theme song was playing the whole time, though, so at least the FBI's got a sense of humor. The article goes on to describe a few interrogation simulations and firearms tests that the recruits have to pass. The article also tells the stories of the recruits who were unable to pass training. Some were unaware of the challenges that they would face during this 20-week period, and others failed written or marksmanship tests. I actually have a professor whose son is an FBI officer, and he went to Quantico, obviously, and he said that if you scored below 70% on any test, you were out. No badge for you. If you do make it through, though, the article describes the graduation procedures. Family members are invited to an auditorium, and then the new officers are sworn in by the FBI director. And they get to take a really cute class picture. Then, to close the day, they all walk back to the gun safe, the same one that stores the melted gun and the gun with the hole blown through it, 
and they each receive a Glock 22. What a nice graduation present. Uh, so my point in going over all of this is that it's not an easy training program to get through. Not everyone can breeze through the training and become an FBI agent. Most people probably can't even get accepted to the academy. So it's just a little odd to me that Jack Crawford in the film would pull Clarice out of school to have her traveling the country in search of a serial killer. But I guess that's kind of crucial for plot advancement, so I'll let it pass. So like I said earlier, I want to go over a few real-life serial killers that may have influenced the character of Jane Gum. But before I do that, I think it's important to go over a couple key criminology terms. A lot of you have probably heard of profiling. Uh, it's a pretty common topic on crime shows and in the news. But just in case, um, profiling is the process of developing the most likely generalization of a criminal. So when you're watching the news and the reporter says something like, Officials believe the rapist is a white male in his late 20s to mid 30s with a high school education. Um, that's an example of profiling. Using information from past crimes and observations from the crime scenes, detectives are able to come up with the psychological, behavioral, and sometimes even physical characteristics that would most likely belong to the offender. But it's also really important to know that profiling isn't a foolproof science. A lot of times, profiles are wrong and misleading. Uh, for example, even though most serial killers are white males in their late 20s to 30s, that doesn't mean that every serial killer fits that description. So investigators have to be really careful with profiles. Even though they can be a helpful tool, you can't just cross off a suspect just because he or she doesn't fit the profile. So a few things can assist in the development of a profile, and those include modus operandi and signature. I'm gonna go over both of those in a little more detail and then describe how they relate to the crimes in The Silence of the Lambs. You were telling me the truth back in Baltimore, sir. Please continue now. Well, I have read the case files, have you? Everything you need to find him is right there in those pages. And tell me how. First principles, Clarice. Simplicity. This information comes from a portion of an FBI bulletin written by John E. Douglas and Corin Munn titled Violent Crime Scene Analysis. The first thing it dives into is modus operandi which is basically a fancy way of saying how the crime is committed. Modus operandi is also referred to as MO, and MO covers the basics, such as victim selection, weapon, and method of coercion. MO can change over time. So imagine a burglar who starts by breaking a window to enter houses. Uh, after a few times, he's probably going to realize that he would make a lot less noise and have a lesser chance of being caught if he switched to picking the lock instead. So maybe the best way to explain the definition of MO in the distinctions between MO and signatures is with an example. Uh, so we'll go into it with Silence of the Lambs. For the four main crimes that are referenced in the film, Gum lures women by feigning an injury and asking for help. Then the woman is knocked out, kidnapped, and transported to a well in Gum's basement. Gum starves the women to loosen their skin, uh, then murders them before removing a section of their skin. With his first three victims, the cause of death was hanging. For his fourth victim, he shifts to using a gun. 
Uh, this demonstrates that the MO is dynamic. It can and does change over time. Maybe he was worried that the fourth victim would escape, or maybe he ran out of rope. I don't know. The point is that investigators can't expect a criminal to show the exact same MO at each crime scene. Although the killing occurs in his home, Gum dumps each victim's body in a different area. For one of his victims, and this is a deviation from his usual MO, he weighted the body down to delay its discovery. So far, everything that I've mentioned is crucial to the act of committing his crime. It's all part of the MO. If you're a serial killer, it's pretty much a given that you'll select victims, kill the victims, and then attempt to evade detection. But the next element I'm going to talk about, the signature, goes above the standard call of a serial killer. The signature is something unique to the individual killer. The desire to leave a signature or a calling card is driven by fantasy or impulse. It's not necessary to committing the crime. Uh, you might be familiar with Jack the Ripper. His signature was excessive violence and mutilation uh, that he exerted on his victims after their death. More recent examples come from the BTK killer, aka Dennis Rader, and the Zodiac Killer. Both taunted the police and media by sending letters about their crimes. Raider signed with the initials BTK laid out to look like a woman's torso. The Zodiac Killer always signed off with this creepy little circle with a cross in the middle. If you're a serial killer, it is not necessary to send letters to the police. So Raider and the Zodiac Killer were going above the call of duty because they both had fantasies about being an absolute control. Both of them were power hungry. Serial killing wasn't enough, so they had to openly taunt law enforcement, and that's why it's considered a signature. Jane Gum also had a signature, and if you've seen the movie poster for The Silence of the Lambs, you should probably have a good idea of what it is. Gum was transgender and wanted to transition to have a physically female body. Uh, but he was denied this because he murdered his grandparents when he was 12, um, and he had a history of physically attacking gay men. So Gum develops this obsession with moss and butterflies. He's just fascinated by the physical transformations that they can go through. So he keeps them as pets and breeds them in his home. I hadn't seen this movie in a while uh, when I was going in to research this episode, so I was looking for a clip of these insects online and there are actually a bunch of montages on YouTube with all of the scenes with insects. So if you're into that, it's out there. Uh, but with his fourth victim, and I'm excluding his grandparents from that count because it's not really covered in the original movie, uh, before he dumps the body, Gum places a death's head hawk moth in the fourth victim's throat. That is not necessary to the act of serial killing. It stems from Gum's own fantasy to physically transform, and that's why it's considered a signature. And it's precisely that signature that leads Starling to the conclusion that she's got the right house when she goes to scope it out. Gum doesn't get the chance to commit any more murders after that initial moth placement because Starling kills him. Uh, but just for knowledge's sake, I want to mention that although the signature will always remain basically the same, it can evolve a little bit over time. Uh, for example, gum would probably always utilize moths or butterflies. 
but maybe instead of placing them in the victim's mouth, uh, maybe he'd cover her eyes with them or stick two out of her ears. I I don't know what he would do. But uh, it's also good to know that even though the signature will remain basically the same, it won't always be present at every crime scene. And that just stems from logistics. Uh, For instance, if Gum is at the river getting ready to dump the body and he sees a car's headlights go by, he's probably not going to take the time to place a moth in the victim's mouth and risk getting caught. So now that you know some basic criminology ideas, I want to start exploring where the inspiration for Jane Gum came from. Most of the time, in my experience with fictionalized horror films and even novels, the villain is a loose translation of an actual criminal. And usually, authors and scriptwriters narrow in on one or two serial killers. With one or two cases, there's usually enough source material to make a pretty compelling antagonist. That was not the case with The Silence of the Lambs. There are a lot of estimates out there that gum is actually a composite of about six real-life killers. That's kind of excessive, but I guess it was successful. It did pull some Oscars. Uh, And because there are so many serial murderers to go over here, I've tried to organize this section by how it would relate chronologically to Gum's crimes. So I'll start with the murder of his grandparents, then move into coercion, then several elements of his modus operandi. All of this information comes from the same guy, Dr. Mike Amott of Radford University. He runs an online database of about 4,800 serial killers. I can't even express how incredible of a resource this database is. There is such a wealth of information here. For each individual, the database goes through a series of categories. You've got life events, demographics, childhood information, cognitive abilities, work history, relationships, presence or absence of the McDonald triad, psychological information, criminal history, and details of the actual serial killings. So if you're interested in criminology at all, this is definitely a source that you're going to want to check out. I mentioned in an earlier episode uh, that I took a course on serial killers last term, and Amot's database was an incredible resource for me. Almost anything you'd want to know, and lots of stuff you don't want to know, can be found there. I can't overstate how much I love this guy's website, uh, but that's enough plugging it for now. So the first serial killer I want to examine is Edmund Kemper. And I'm kind of an expert on this guy because I wrote a 15-page research paper on him last year. But for this segment of the show, I don't want to dive too deeply into every killer. There are six to go through, so I'm just going to give a general overview of their crimes and how they relate to gum. But if you're interested in all the nitty-gritty details, you know where to find them, uh, because I gushed about Amot for about a full minute. So, Ed Kemper was born in 1948 to an abusive mother. His two sisters reinforced the abuse. Uh, His childhood is filled with aggravating factors, but one of the most notable to me was a game he played with one of his sisters called Gas Chamber. Um, So she would pretend to be an executioner, and then he would pretend that he was dying by gas. So at the age of 15, Kemper was sent to live with his grandparents in California, and this is when some real trouble starts coming out. 
Uh, Kemper's grandfather took him rabbit hunting, so Kemper got access to a gun, which is not good. Uh, On August 27th, 1964, at the ripe age of 15, Kemper shot his grandmother three times in the back of the head. When his grandfather returned later that day, he shot him once. Uh, Both of his grandparents were killed. And later, when Kemper was questioned by the police about his motive, he simply said he just wanted to see what it felt like to shoot grandma. Kemper got sent to Atascadero State Hospital. He behaved well while he was there, and doctors actually allowed him to assist in giving psychiatric evaluations. The problem with this is that Kemper was highly intelligent. He memorized all the correct responses to the tests, and he was able to convince a board to release him in 1969 at the age of 21. This was a bad move. Uh, Kemper went on to kill four young women before murdering his mother and her best friend. So this is a pretty obvious connection to Jane Gum. Uh, I've read all of the books in the Silence of the Lamb series, so I'm not sure which one reveals this information, but it is given that Gum was abandoned by a neglectful mother and then adopted by his grandparents. The two became his first victims when he impulsively murdered them at the age of 12. Gum was sent to a psychiatric hospital, but as we know from the movie, he was released. So next up on the serial killer list is Ted Bundy. You're probably familiar with this guy. He has 36 known victims, but he's probably best known for his intelligence and good looks. Uh, Most people don't picture a handsome guy when you mention serial killers. But what's really unique about Bundy is that he escaped. Not once, but twice. The first escape was from Pitkin County Law Library in Colorado on June 7, 1977. He was apprehended again a few days later on the 13th. This time, they put him in Garfield County Jail. Law enforcement did not learn their lesson as he escaped again on December 30, 1977. This time, he fled all the way to Tallahassee, Florida, where he could claim three more victims before being arrested for the final time. So Bundy relates to Gum in terms of M.O. To lure his victims to his vehicle, Bundy would pretend to be injured and ask for help. When the woman agreed, Bundy would use a crowbar in the back of his trunk to subdue her. If that sounds familiar, it should, uh, because Gum's tactics were almost identical. You might remember the scene in the film where Gum is struggling to load a chair into his van. He's parked in the parking lot of an apartment complex that he scoped out, and he's got a fake cast on his right arm. Catherine Martin, in all of her Southern hospitality, decides that it's a really great idea to help this stranger in the unlit parking lot. So after they get the chair in the van, Gum uses a sneak attack, but instead of a crowbar, he just uses his fists but still very similar tactics of deception. So the next partial inspiration for Gum was Gary Heidnick. This is the only one of the six that I hadn't heard of before I started researching for this episode, and I don't know how because he was one bad dude. So Heidnick was a guy that desired absolute control. His mother died of an overdose before his first birthday, but was honorably discharged for mental disabilities in 1962. A few years later, he was fired from his job as a nurse. 
and I'm extrapolating a bit here, but I don't think that it's too big of a stretch to assume that Heidnik felt out of control. So in 1976, at the age of 33, Heidnik experiences some luck in the stock market. Uh, he moves into a new home with his mentally disabled, illiterate girlfriend. They have their first and only child together two years later. That same year that they have the child, the couple goes to pick up his girlfriend's handicapped sister. Later on, Heidnik is arrested for chaining up the sister in his basement and committing several sexual offenses against her. He goes to jail for four years and four months. When he gets out, he places an ad in the newspaper for a wife, and surprisingly, it's answered. This is where it gets really wild. So, in 1986, at the age of 43, he starts abducting women. They're all between the ages of 18 and 25. He abducts five women over a period of about four months, and he keeps them as sex slaves in his basement. They're restrained by chains, whipped, beaten, and electrocuted. Two of the victims were killed. 25-year-old Sandra Lindsay died after hanging from ceiling beams for too long. Her replacement, which was 23-year-old Deborah Dudley, was electrocuted in a water pit in the basement because she wasn't obedient. Uh, thankfully, though, the first woman that was kidnapped, Josefina Rivera, was able to gain the trust of Heidnik, and somehow she was able to convince him to unchain her. She was able to escape from the house and call the police, which led to the arrest of Heidnik and the saving of three lives. Heidnik was executed by lethal injection in 1999. This story is just unbelievable to me. I can't even comprehend the situation, and it's certainly not something that I would have brainstormed and come up with for a book. So, once again, it's really easy to see the parallels between this guy and James Gum. It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. <laughs> Mr. My family will pay cash. Whatever ransom you're asking for, they'll pay it. <laughs> Although Gum didn't sexually assault his victims, the act of keeping victims in a home for an extended period of time is pretty unique. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but the majority of serial killers don't have the time or the impulse control for that. So the next inspiration comes from Jerry Brudos. This guy operated on the West Coast in the 60s. He was a lust killer if there ever was one. At the age of five, he developed an obsession with high-heeled shoes. Then between the ages of eight and 12, he expands his horizons to include women's undergarments. By puberty in the age 16, he's stalking women and stealing clothes from them. Then it just goes off the tracks. Um, taking clothes isn't enough for him anymore, so he graduates to murder and post-mortem sex. Uh, so in addition to taking clothing and shoes as trophies, Brutus also collects body parts. Uh, this is the guy that kept a severed left foot in his freezer. Not surprisingly, he kept it in a high-heeled shoes. Brudos was convicted of three murders, but he confessed to four. He wasn't charged with the fourth death simply because the body was never found. Uh, but it's also worth noting that 12 other women that met his victim criteria went missing during his active period. Once again, this is a pretty obvious parallel. 
Uh, one of the most iconic scenes from The Silence of the Lambs occurs when James Gum starts dancing to Goodbye Horses. He puts on makeup and jewelry. He's dressed solely in this fancy scarf thing, and he does the tuck. Uh, I don't have anything against dressing and whatever makes you feel comfortable, but I do have a problem with taking those things from murder victims. So four down, two to go. The next one I want to move into is the disposal of bodies. And for this, I'm going to turn to Gary Leon Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer. This guy is so influential that he's going to pop up twice in this episode. All you need to know for this portion, though, is that he killed at least 49 women, but he's confessed to about double that. The victims ranged in age from 15 to 38, and they were all either prostitutes or runaways, which is pretty traditional as those are uh, classically targeted. So Ridgway is a great example of how MO can change. Some of his victims were left in plain sight at the location of the murder. Others were buried at the location of the murder, and still others were dropped in the Green River. That's how he got the moniker. So that's as far as I'm gonna go into the Green River Killer for this segment just because he's a major focus of the closing. I feel silly even going over the relationship between these serial killers and James Gum, because it just seems so obvious to me. But if you listen for the science um, and the real life case studies and not for the horror films, I'll go ahead and fill you in. So Gum dropped his victims, except for his grandparents, in rivers to get rid of trace evidence. He also weighted down the body of his first victim so that she would be found later than the next two. He did this as a way of distracting the police. Gum knew the first victim personally, uh, but he didn't want the police to know that. He wanted it to seem like some random woman was magically selected. So in that sense, Gum deviates a little bit from the model of Ridgeway. Gum was being intelligent about how he got rid of these bodies. He had a plan. Although some of Ridgway's crimes were categorized as organized lust murders, several were also classified as disorganized thrill kills. That explains why sometimes Ridgway just left the body open in the middle of the woods. Not the brightest decision, uh, but who am I to judge because Ridgway went uncharged for about 20 years. Finally, we've got the one and only Ed Gein. This guy didn't have the highest body count but he has been so influential in horror. So obviously, if I'm talking about him now, he's got connections to the Silence of the Lambs, but he's also influenced Psycho and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He gets around. So I'm going to go into a bit more detail for Ed Gein, and that's just because he's had such an impact. So Gein was born to an abusive alcoholic father and an uber-religious mother, Augusta, in 1906. He had a brother, Henry, who was four years older. Like most serial killers, Ed Gein did not have a happy childhood. 
Whenever he would try to make friends at school, his mother would punish him. Uh, on the other hand, when he would tell his dad about being teased at school, Gein was beaten until his ears rung. Eventually, the family moved out on a farm in Wisconsin, and their closest neighbors were over a mile away. Augusta had a really warped sense of reality and religion, and because of the family's isolation, that view was transferred to Ed. It was all he knew. Augusta continually told Ed and Henry that they were going to turn out to be failures like their father, who was drinking away all the family's money. Augusta absolutely hated men. She held a very generalized view that all men were pigs and alcoholics and just awful. So when Ed was 21, his mom made him promise to stay a virgin forever. Ed was obsessed with his mother, and I don't mean that in the slang sense. Ed and his brother Henry remained on the farm for the entirety of their adult lives. When Ed turned 38 in 1944, Henry started to criticize their mother. Henry was voicing concerns that maybe Ed was a little bit too attached. This didn't fly too well with Ed. Uh, so on May 16, 1944, Henry died at the age of 43. Ed reported that he and his brother were working to contain a fire that had started in a marsh near their farmhouse. In the police report, Ed said that he lost track of his brother in the commotion of the fire. But um, he also led the police right to where Henry's body was. So that's interesting. But wait, there's more. Um, Henry's body wasn't burnt, but his head was bruised. That's suspicious. But the county coroner listed the cause of death as asphyxiation. The police didn't go into a murder investigation at all because they didn't think Ed was capable of killing somebody. That was a dumb decision. A year later, Ed's mother passes away after having her second stroke. This obviously devastates him, and he starts to board up rooms in the farmhouse to preserve how things were when his mother was still alive. He eventually boarded up all but two rooms, and they stayed that way until his arrest. Spoiler alert, he gets arrested. Uh, so two years later, 1947, age 41, Ed goes to the cemetery where Augusta is buried. Go ahead and brace yourself for these next few minutes because it gets crazy. Uh, he digs up his mother's corpse and removes her head with his bare hands. Then he takes it home and shrinks it and just keeps it as a trinket around the house. So for the next four years, he visits a lot of graves, about 40 cemeteries to be more precise. It's confirmed that he dug up nine bodies, but that number seems a little low to most people. All of these, I guess you still call them victims, even though they're already dead, um, all of them were recently deceased middle-aged women like his mother. Gein got his leads from newspaper obituaries. In 1951, Gein met a woman named Mary Hogan. She looked a lot like his mom, but she was very open. Uh, Hogan was on the opposite end of the personality and religious spectrum as Augusta. Gein started stalking her. Three years later, in 1954, she disappeared from work. It was later revealed that Gein had shot her with a 22. The literal next day after the murder, Gein confessed to a co-worker. But the co-worker didn't take him seriously, uh, so Gein walked free. 
Three years later, Gein struck again, this time against a 58-year-old store owner, Bernice Warden. Once again, she was shot in the head. Uh, the police were a little less ignorant this time. They checked the register and saw that the last sale of the day was made to Ed Gein. So the next day, November 17, 1957, the police made a house call. And I think it's safe to say that they were not expecting what they found. So they go into the house, and in the kitchen, Warden's corpse is hanging upside down, headless, split vertically down the entire torso. They also found skulls that were used as decorations on his bedposts, a box filled with organs, furniture made of skin and bones, masks, and a full-body suit. The masks and the suit were authentic, preserved human parts. Uh, and those are just some highlights of his home decor. So Gein confessed to the murders of Hogan and Warden. But it's also worth noting that several unsolved disappearances occurred in his area during his active period. Um, the database that I was using seems to suggest that Gein may have been responsible, but I'd have to disagree there. I think that the missing persons, who included an 8-year-old girl, a 15-year-old girl, and two middle-aged men, were too far from Gein's preferred victim profile of middle-aged women like his mom. Uh, but still, Gein didn't have a lack for material for his home decorating. Uh, you'll remember he was a grave robber. So Ed went to trial for both deaths and was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He spent the rest of his life in an institution. The staff described him as a model patient, mild-mannered, and helpful. Once again, this connection is just so obvious. Uh, so Gum's superficial motivation for his killings was just to obtain the material that he needed to make his woman suit. With Gein's fascination with body parts, it's really not a hard comparison to draw. So to me, James Gum is just such a complex character. I would say that most Americans would recall Hannibal Lecter more easily, but Gum is this multifaceted composite of like six real-life serial killers, which is kind of a bold move, but it really worked well. The final thing I want to talk about in this episode is the idea of a captured serial killer assisting with an investigation for an active killer. When I first saw this movie and read the books, I might have been in like 10th grade. So aside from trying to hide the cover of the book from my peers, uh, I remember thinking that it just seemed absolutely ludicrous that an incarcerated killer would be enlisted on an investigation team. But what I found over the past week of research or so is that this idea of collaboration between a convicted killer and law enforcement isn't really a fictional thing. Uh, so this information comes from two sources, an interview conducted by Hannelore Setterman in 2007 for the Washington State University magazine, and an article written by Julia May in 2003 for Sam Houston State University. So for this segment, we're going to bring back Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway. It all ties together. But the story starts with a man named Robert Keppel. Keppel was exposed to law enforcement at a very early age. While Keppel was growing up in Washington State, his father, who was a senior liquor inspector, 
played cards at the house with the chief of state police, the sheriff, and the head of the liquor board. When Keppel entered high school, his father took a position as chief of security at a supermarket chain. Keppel said of this experience, I got to watch him interview shoplifters. It wasn't a case where he wanted to take somebody to jail. It was a case where he wanted to get their confession of previous shoplifting so he could get restitution for the store. So Keppel attended Washington State University, where he earned his master's degree in police science. After serving 11 months in the Vietnam War, he became a deputy sheriff in King County, Washington. Keppel claims that he wanted to be a uniformed police officer, but because he was just so good at writing reports, uh, something that most officers don't enjoy, he was persuaded to take the test to become a detective. He passed. For a year and a half, he worked as a burglary larceny detective. So far, this is all pretty basic stuff, uh, but here's where it starts to heat up. An older homicide detective was having heart problems due to the stress of his work. So Keppel got moved up to the homicide team. If you remember from earlier in the podcast, Ted Bundy was active in Washington, Utah, Colorado, and Florida. Interestingly, Keppel was part of the team that caught Bundy in 1975. Bundy escaped two years later and headed to Tallahassee, but was apprehended again in 1978. During the time that Bundy was incarcerated in Florida, Keppel got assigned to the Green River Killer case. There just must be something in the water in King County. So investigators were having a hard time with this one. The confirmed kill count for the Green River Killer is 49, but he eventually confessed to around 100. He said he lost count. This is about the time that Keppel gets contact from Ted Bundy. Bundy, who's sitting on death row in Florida, says that he'll help Keppel catch the Green River Killer. One condition, though. He has to work with Keppel. This sounds a lot like Hannibal Lecter only cooperating with Starling. Quick, pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. Not about this case, though. About yourself. Quick, pro quo. Yes or no? So Keppel took Bundy up on the offer and flew out to Florida. Bundy and the Green River Killer exhibited a lot of the same behaviors, so Keppel thought that Bundy might be able to provide some insight. Before he started the interviews, though, Keppel consulted a clinical psychologist and a psychiatrist. He had to learn how to tell when Bundy was telling the truth and when he was lying. So even though the key goal here was to get closer to capturing the Green River Killer, Keppel also wanted to form a relationship with Bundy. Even though he had been convicted, there were still a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, and this worked. So about three weeks before his execution, Bundy had his civil attorney give Keppel a call. Keppel traveled back down to Florida, and four days before the execution, Bundy confessed to eight additional murders and gave the locations of the remains. So as a result of this, Keppel was able to close several cases in King County. Gary Ridgway wasn't positively identified as the Green River Killer until 2001, when new DNA technology linked him to several cases. So even though Bundy wasn't the biggest help, uh, it was still really interesting to me to find out that this type of collaboration actually occurs outside of movies. If you're interested in learning more about this relationship between Keppel and Bundy, Keppel wrote a book about the exchanges in 1995. 
It's titled The River Man. Ted Bundy and I hunt for the Green River Killer. So there you have it. Um, This was one of the more connected episodes that I've done, just really narrowing in on the criminology. Uh, We started off with describing the experiences of trainees at Quantico before moving right into modus operandi and signatures. Then we had the rundown of six different serial killers, all related to the characterization of Jane Gum. Uh, And finally, the unexpected team of a homicide detective and a serial killer. As always, if you're listening on iTunes, feel free to subscribe and leave a rating or a review. If you missed the website earlier, which will have links to all the sources that I've referenced throughout this episode, that can be found at horrorscience.x10host.com. Also, the podcast has a SoundCloud account up under the profile name Horror Science. And you might notice uh, that if you're listening on iTunes or SoundCloud, that you don't have access to the first couple of episodes, uh, like Nightmare on Elm Street and The Babadook. That's because SoundCloud is limiting the minutes that I have available. So I'm working on finding another host for the audio, but that's probably not going to roll out until season two of the podcast. So for now, if you want to listen to the first few episodes, all of them, one through seven, are available at the website horrorscience.x10host.com. And finally, if you've got any comments on this episode or any suggestions for future films, you can send an email out to horrorsciencepodcast at gmail.com or you can send a tweet to at horrorsciencepo. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for a new episode in two weeks.